Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Nico Valcarcel, who leads product security team at Nextrol. Nico, welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. I would love to get started just talking a little bit about your background. So obviously, you are leading a lot of different aspects of software security, product security, cloud security within uh, Nextrol. However, one thing that really fascinated me was that you're not a career security person. You came from a different background. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I am and I'm not in the same sense. So I started my career in security, actually. Security is like everything I wanted to be since I was like, you know, 15 or whatever. You know, like Hollywood hacker movies. I want to to just do that. Then I joined the Ubuntu community, kind of like helping around and, and doing like open source development in, in the server and security team. And then I got a job that got hired by them for doing vulnerability management. Well, what I know now, it was vulnerability management at that point in time. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what application security was at that time or pretty much any type of security work by any right. stretch of the imagination. You know, fresh out of dropping college for that job and, and kind of things. So one of the things I did is I went into development for like about five to six years just to learn that and to get that understanding from the security development background because I, I wanted to know how programs and software was actually built and, and all the different components and how they mix together so I can actually do security job more like, you know, with more knowledge and, and whatnot. So yeah, I switched careers into development until like, Five years ago, I think, when I, you know, I was at a startup, I, through my whole software development career, I was the annoying developer jumping around and talking about security all the freaking time. Um, so <laughs> there's uh, not many of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> I was very stand out for that. So I was at a startup at the time. I joined very, very early in their process. And once they got big enough that security was something important, they had to do their first security audit and that kind of stuff. They got asked, like, you know, what is a security person? And they just pointed at me, like, that's the guy you want to talk with. Right. Uh, and it was interesting that I learned that I was the security guy from the auditors rather than from my bosses. <laughs> and I just got handed security uh, for the whole, you know, kind of CISO job, but we're talking small startups, sure, so not sure. really CISO job, right? So, so yeah, I helped build that security program. And, and, you know, because I already had the knowledge of the code base, the program, the engineering team, very well known in the, in the, in the company. I got to get back into security. And now I'm doing application security, which is what I just learned. That is the, the thing that I have been searching for my whole life and my whole career. And, and that ended up for me being a developer. So yeah, I got like from security out of security and then back to security. Kind of That's fun. fantastic. That's fantastic. So I think one of the key differences that at least I've noticed is the way security people think about things and problems and solutions as compared to how engineers and developers and what motivates them and so on and so forth. Since you've worn both hats, do you have any opinions on, you know, what are the key differences between what it takes for a great developer to become a great security person and how do they think differently? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because then I guess another thing that helped me with that background is 
joining early stage startups and, and being part of the founding team, if you will, like not as a founder, but, you know, one of the original developers and, and working closely with the founders is that on the engineering side, you're very face to face with the business. Like you need to do new features. You need to please customers. You, you're talking to them all the time. And one of the things that you learn, especially in startups, is that you do not have a lot of resources to work with, right? Like there is not enough time, there is not enough money, there is not enough people to build whatever you want to build. And you really have no idea if you're going to still have a company six months from now, right? So spending a lot of time on doing the right thing and securing things and, and spending, and not, not just security, like performance-wise, like you don't spend a lot of time doing very performant SQL queries, just do something that works, put it in there, ship it to production, put it in the hands of customers so you can get feedback and whatnot. So their mentality is usually in that sense, most than any other thing, where like they're just thinking, or as a developer, you mainly think on how can I get this product to move forward rather to make it more robust. Of course, stability and all the kind of things is, is top of mind as well because you don't want to be waking in like the middle of the night of a Saturday because some production issue or, or whatever. But the main focus, the day-to-day, you have the product managers, the, the salespeople, like all like customers want this, customers want that, like it's the feedback we got from customers and it's like all customers, 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 customers. And everything is about the return of investment of everything we do, how much more deals we're going to close and that kind of stuff. Right. The security side is not that much, right? It's more of like how once you start on a B2B journey and selling to bigger customers, there is some part of that as well because, you know, they have security questionnaires. They need to get answers. They need to have this type of stuff. But in a more B2C one, you don't care that much because it's not, quick ROI, very, very tangible, like this is how you're going to get to get your money for back. And they usually see security as a showstopper because it's slowing them down in order to produce this kind of stuff. Like from the security side, you know, if the product doesn't change at all, that's the best, right? Like we can lock it down, no connections, no nothing. So there is this trade-off that needs to be done all the time. And most security professionals are very purist in like, this is the right way and we need to spend a lot of time doing this way, which is the more secure, like using the correct cryptography, using the correct like secrets management, all that kind of stuff. But then it's a lot of money. It's a lot of time that you're taking from something else that you can put in front of customers. So which one you choose, right? right. That's- so basically what I'm hearing is developers have a lot of things to deal with. Obviously, that's not news, right? And they are almost always incentivized to build that next feature, help close that next deal, help increase the revenue, expand usage, whatever business goal that might be relevant to them. And security is one aspect of what they need to do. Now, we would also argue, a lot of security people also argue that Security is not considered even as a part of what they care about a lot of times by developers. So what have you seen in terms of, like, if you're a developer, how do you as a developer get convinced that, yes, I should spend some time on security? What are those things that have worked for you? Yeah, so 
again, as a developer, you have a lot of requests from many different places, right? Like everybody's telling you what to do. Everybody is asking you to do something different. Like there is this new feature. There is this bug that needs to be fixed. There is like this whatever thing. You have the product manager, founders, salespeople, everybody coming to you for doing something. And security is just one of those historically, one of the things I have noticed is that a lot of security professionals have been of the, this is what you need to do, and you need to do it because I said so. But then as a developer, you're like, okay, but I have five people telling me to do something. Like, why do I need to listen to you? And they're like, oh, because security is important and we need to care about security, which doesn't really get the point across. There is always a why. There is always a reason that is going to be better for developers. Why should they care? Why do they want to spend time? Like if I, as a security professional, just go away, what is the problem they're going to face, right? It's more of like, the only reason I need to do this is because you're annoying, get away, right? Kind of situation. <laughs> so one of the things I, I, I always try to do is come with the why. This is the reason we're doing this. This is the reason we, we want to focus on these things. And also try to understand their side of things, right? Like, Patching, for example, like it's very easy to say, just be in the latest version of this whatever thing. But then once you work as a developer, one of the things you learn is that being on the latest version of whatever library comes with a lot of cost as well. Mm -hmm. Like things break, they are not backward compatible. They need some reworking to be done because the new version functions in a slightly different way or whatever. So it's not that easy. Or you just go to the new version Let's say Python, you need to upgrade from Python 2 to Python 3. You need to rewrite like a good portion of your code because Python 3 is not backwards compatible with Python 2 to some extent. So it's not a trivial change to make. So just like, but just update, it's easy. Well, it's not really, right? So Right, just because your dependency scanner can make an automated PR doesn't mean it'll actually get merged and it'll actually work, right? Exactly, right? Like it, it can break the whole system. And the problem is that they just, you know, you get the, the automated PR, then you merge it, and then you get waking at the three in the morning when somebody tries to do something and your application breaks. Like, I'm not doing that. Like, no way. So there is a risk involved in actually doing the secure thing as well that they need to suppressate and, and see what's the trade-off being made there. Right. I think the inherent challenge with that is, like, look, we can provide justifications on why this matters and that matters. But at the end of the day, typically, you know, security engineers are one person per 100 developers, roughly, right? If you are a well-resourced team. And then when you're dealing with so many different kinds of security bugs and issues and, you know, initiatives and so on and so forth, you really don't have the time to provide justification to developers on every single thing. In my previous roles, I have been in positions where the developer would say, well, if this is exploitable, then show me the exploit. Try to do a POC and then I'll fix it. Well, that kind of argument is also not very scalable, right? Because I mean, we don't have enough people to keep writing exploits for every single thing or show and prove every single vulnerability that might exist in an environment. How do you scale that, maintain that balance right. of providing that justification and also being reasonable? Well, that's the thing. You don't have to give an explanation for every single one of the updates. You just need to give an explanation of why do you need updates? And it's not because of security vulnerabilities, right? Like one of the things I always like half jokingly, half seriously tell them is like, well, you have two options, right? You can proactively update the things and you can eat the risk or you can not update the things and eat the risk of that. And when it gets exploited, you will need to update this, drop everything you're doing 
and get this fixed with me breathing on your neck. Like, choose one kind of situation. Right. Um, because that's the risk at the end of the day, right? Like, it's like, I understand that there is a vulnerability here. I understand that we might not be using that path. And I can trust you that you're making the right decision, that you're not doing this and you're telling me this is fine. We're using this library, but we're not using this particular function that is the one vulnerable. At the end of the day, you know the code base way better than I do. So you will be the one making the decision better. But if you're wrong, at some point, I'm going to come down and breathe on your neck while you fix it because we're in an incident situation. That's no, right. no joke, right? So you don't have to really give an explanation on each one of those. And the other thing I try to do in this concept is, uh, kind of as I said, is this partnership, right? Like, I understand the vulnerabilities. I understand the exploits, but I do not know the code base. Even though mm-hmm. I'm a developer and I could do it, I don't have the time to spend right. to know the code base as well as the developers know it. So I need to have to trust them and leverage them. So there is this partnership and this politics game, if you will, where you need to build this trust relationship and this partnership where like, I'm going to give you the information that you need and present you with information that is going to be relevant for you and kind of like cut on all the trash that is in, in the sensors. And then you're going to make the decision. But ultimately you carry the responsibilities of the decision being made, right? I'm just presenting you with this information. So is it not like a, you need to do this exactly? It's more like, I trust you're going to do the, the, the right thing. Here is all the information that is actually relevant to you. And also have to revisit all the time what information is being relevant and hear feedback from them and take action. Because if you come with this promise and then they come to you and say like, well, by the way, your tool is giving me like a lot of spam and I don't, you know, there is too much alerts. I just cannot keep up and you do nothing to fix that. They're going to stop trusting you and this relationship breaks, right? That's right. Yeah. Going back to your earlier point, though, I mean, I think it's great that you can have the conversation with, with someone and say, hey, look, it's your choice. You can fix it or not fix it. But if it goes south, then, you know, it's going to be your responsibility kind of a thing. The one inherent challenge with that is a lot of times, depending on who you're talking to, an individual developer maybe they're not the right people to accept that risk on the company's behalf, right? Especially if you're talking to like a mid-level or a junior developer, they don't understand the implications or they might not understand the implications. You may not want them to accept the risk. So in those kinds of situations, and also the other hand, the developer might say, I want to fix it, but what I work on is not dictated by me, right? There's somebody else, maybe a product manager, maybe a you know, an engineering manager, somebody else decides what goes in the sprint or what gets prioritized to be fixed. So how do you bring those multiple relevant parties involved into a conversation and make sure that whoever is making the decision, whether it's you or the developer or anybody else, they are the right people to make that decision with of something right. not being fixed? Yeah, so there is the escalation, the escalation policy, right? Like this conversation is not made just with the, you know, boots on the ground developers, maybe them senior, junior or whatever. This conversation is being made with engineering as a whole. And that includes the CTO, CIO, whatever you have or VP of engineering and, and have this conversation with all the levels in engineering and understanding that this is the way we're going to operate where they still have the freedom to decide. Right. But they will have to have the right people to decide. And ultimately, probably, it's not that I'm going to be breathing down your neck. It's more like I'm going to go tell the CTO or CIO and come with them to breathe on your neck together. 
to get these pics, right? And that's probably more scary than just me being yeah. there. So you need the, the conversation on the whole. And then you have to also help that with a lot of education on your side and explaining this and re- repeating this like multiple times, what it is, explaining different types of vulnerabilities, what they do and these kind of things so they can they can have that. And also making yourself available because sometimes even very experienced developers, they're going to see a vulnerability and they're just not going to understand it because that's not their day-to-day job, right? Like right. They don't right. have to understand it really. So you need to make yourself available and help anytime you can. In my case, it's kind of easy because I have a background as a developer. So if I need to jump and write some code and provide a patch, I can just do that. So that part to me has been very easy and helpful to have on my background. But yeah, that's kind of things, right? So one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, involving CTO or other kinds of leadership in that decision making. So what does it actually look like? Are you talking about something like a compliance driven risk register kind of a thing? Or are you talking about, you know, Jira tickets or spreadsheets or what exactly does that look like? Well, there is policies, right? And policies have to be signed by senior leadership. So you have the policy, the, say, the vulnerability management policy. That has to be signed with like, you know, high level people. You cannot just write it and roll it out. It, it needs to be agreed upon. And this is more like a political high suits kind of people discussion rather than, than just me dictating, right? So you have to have this conversation with them. So the other thing you said is like they don't dictate what they work on and there is the product managers and whatever. Right. Right. Um, so on that front, it wasn't my initiative, but I, tag along and make it the most out of it is that they don't only have to work on features and and whatnot, like engineering teams need to also do some work on cleaning their technical depth, like making tooling for making their job easier. And this kind of like house cleaning jobs that they have to do all the time in order to improve their throughput and the work they do and their performance. So one thing I had in a previous company is that product could only dictate 80% of the the work on a given sprint and each engineering time had 20% of time reserved for doing their own work. Hmm. So engineering managers could say, okay, I have five developers, you can only take up to four and I will have one person back fixing, for instance, or whatever. So you can, I could use some of that 20% time so I don't have to negotiate with product. In other cases, what I do is also talk with product as well. And in the same way that I have this relationship with engineering, I also need to build this relationship with product and explain them what what I need to do, especially in my role as a product security lead. I not only need to work on getting stuff fixed, but I also need to work on getting security features in. So single sign-on, audit logs, and all of these features that are mostly for our users to use, not for our security team to use, that they need to be built in as well, or some security controls to factor authentication or whatever kind of things. So you also need to have this type of relationship with product in order to get some sort of influence in the roadmap. And again, this is not me coming and dictating them, you need to do this. It's more like this conversation of like, I have this project that we should be working on. Let's figure out how we can work it into the the roadmap so it gets fixed. That's phenomenal. I think that's a really, really important point. So now let's imagine like, you know, you're talking to a very new AppSec manager or AppSec director or somebody who's basically taking over the responsibility of application security, product security, things like that. Obviously, we're all very familiar with all kinds of, you know, technical things and tooling and assessments and all kinds of stuff that we need to do from a pure play security perspective. 
But the other important thing is just establishing relationships across the organization. Now, it varies differently if you're a SecOps person, you know, managing incident response, or you're looking after corporate IT security, the people you need to build relationships with are different. If you're doing application security, product security, those kinds of things, in your opinion, what would you or what would you advise a new AppSec manager or director to focus on building relationships? What kind of people across the company? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I try to focus on and that I, I will advise anybody to do is that while the job is kind of like obviously, or you will think is obviously advocating for security towards engineering or product, the thing that is not so obvious is that you're also the advocate for engineering and product towards security. So in my role, I'm not only like, oh, this is the security things we need to do. I need to go and get engineering to do, but also hear what engineering has to say and what they want from us and come to the security team and tell them, this is what engineering needs from us. And this is what we need to do for them in order to get this sort of thing. So in application security, we're kind of like in the middle of the both, right? Because, you know, security, we want to put more stuff, more sensors, more testing suites in in the pipeline. But then their bills are going to be slower. So yeah. I need to hear that to understand how fast their bill needs to be and then come back and say like, okay, so we need to speed up their bills. This is the way or what they want to do. So we need to figure out how to do that. So I'm also advocating for engineering in the security team in the same way I'm advocating for security in the engineering team. So That's I'm a kind really of like good point. in the middle of both. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that example or maybe give another example of where you're basically advocating the engineering persona within the security planning or, you know, day-to-day things. Can you uh, give me a use case? Yeah, the other thing is that, as we were saying, right, like they do not control their own roadmap, right? Like they have product to do that. So you will talk to the engineers, they will agree they need to fix these things or they need to include these these new vulnerabilities or they have this functionality, whatever thing, let's say an encryption being used in some place that is driving them crazy or the way they manage secrets that is just driving them crazy, but they do not have time to do that because product is doing that. So there is also this go and negotiate with product so engineering can get the time to work on that kind of situation in that kind of stuff. Or, you know, again, seek management. They hate the tool they are using and it has been used because that's what they started using when the company was just like five people or just the founders. And it's still there and it's a legacy system nobody likes. It hasn't scaled. It's just like a a problem for everybody for multiple reasons. So you need to go back and and advocate to the security team. Like we need to find a new solution that works for them. And by the way, this is the list of complaints. So this is the criteria we have to use. Also get engineering to pick these tools. Like let's come up with like, you know, three, two, five, four vendors whatever list and then get a couple of the engineering leaders and do it and get them to choose what they're going to use. Same for SAS, for instance. Let's get them to play with three or four different vendors and they can choose whatever they like the most. And this like type of day-to-day work where like we need them to do these kind of things, but we need to provide these other things and benefit or I don't know, going to go and ask for more budget for engineering teams because they need to start working on a say, authentication microservice, authentication and authorization. So let's go and talk to the CIO and can we please get like a three or four more headcounts so this team can maintain these kind of things and all this kind of stuff. Right. So basically the pattern that I'm observing is collaborate very closely with them 
not just in the day-to-day tactical stuff, but also at a broader level in terms of resource allocation. You mentioned 80% of the time, for example, being driven by product management and 20% for operational health. So work with a product management team to allocate some resources for that 80% time consumption of engineers and 20% operational health security has got to be a part of that 20%, right? Is that Am I yep. summarizing it correctly? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. The end of the day, I'm, I'm basically a security facilitator in steroids. And that's pretty much what I do on a day-to-day, right? I'm, right. I'm just jumping around, talking to people, trying to fix issues and trying to get resources or tools required so we can actually do the secure thing. And that means if I need to go and talk to the CTO or even the CEO, I don't care. I'm just going to go and talk to the CEO, right? Sometimes that's just what it takes. So it has to be these, you know, listen to people and go and advocate for them and get them what they actually need. Yeah. Uh, So the interesting challenge with that is I 100% agree that, you know, almost every single AppSec team needs somebody like this. But typically, the people we hire in AppSec teams are really good at testing, really good at finding bugs, really good at, you know, doing very sophisticated security analyses. In your opinion, how should an ideal AppSec team be constructed of? Because, uh, you know, there's different types of skills needed for different types of things. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that? As usual, I think it's diversity and and not diversity in like race or whatever, but not diversity of background and different things. Like you need people that actually understand developers and that have like walked through their shoes. That's kind of an ideal candidate. You need people that can talk to people in their different ways. So... For instance, one of the things I have heard also a lot is that it's really easy to get buy-in from the business on the security things and, you know, try to get the CFO or the CEO to understand and allocate budget for what we need. But if we just go with like a lot of technical terms and a lot of security jargon, they're just not going to understand. And I have seen a lot of like, oh, no, they need to learn about security and they need to be like experts like us. Like they don't really like there is nothing in their job description that says they have to. We need to find a way to present it to them so they understand what they are doing. Business people understand a lot about risk. Everything in a company and a business is risk, right? You're putting in some money, hoping that you're going to get a return, but there is a risk you're going to lose it. There is a risk you're not going to be on on the market at the same time. There is a risk competitors are going to come. So they understand risk even better than us. Security is just a different type of risk, and we need to figure out how to put it in their words. And also, like something that is very important is to have something that can talk to all these different stakeholders, right? Mm-hmm. And I kind of have to get them to translate in some way from this like security jargon, very technical stuff, something product managers can actually understand, something that engineers can actually understand, something that business people can, can uh, need to understand. And now, of course, like business people is mostly the CISO work and not the application security person. I'm just using that uh, because it's like even more extremes in order to get the point across. But you need to know how product managers think, what they care about, what is the jargon they use and how they see things. You need to understand how engineers do the same thing so you can talk to them and be in some way a translator and a facilitator for them. Right. So who do you think should be doing that? Would you expect an AppSec engineer, senior engineer, staff engineer, forget about seniority, but an individual engineer to build those relationships across different teams, across different functions, and to be able to communicate risk to the leadership? Or do you expect you know, the manager director of that particular team to be doing that? Or do you expect the CISO to be doing that? 
it depends it depends on the company it depends a lot on the company and and how the politics of the company are being played right because one of the things you cannot have or is probably going to fail is you have a junior person trying to talk to the CTO like they're just going to massively fail mainly because the junior person doesn't have the confidence in order to go and stand in front of the CTO and demand anything so you need somebody that has enough confidence in themselves that they can go and have this conversation if not, the CTO is just going to shut down this avenue because it's a waste of time. This person cannot get the point across or whatever. So I would say like whoever has the skills in order to do that, it might be a security engineer, application security engineer that already has that. It might be the application security manager. It might be the CISO. It depends on the company and it needs to be like whoever can actually do it. I have worked also in like big enterprises where if you are not on the C-suite, like they are just not, go- not going to listen to you, like because right. who the hell are you? Like go away kind of situation, right? So, yeah. so it will depend company to company who does this. Yeah. Uh, but you definitely need somebody at the right level, at the right position that has those skill set in order to talk to people. Phenomenal. Yeah. So it, it sounds like that, that skill of being able to collaborate with people who are not security people, being able to work with people who have different objectives and goals and getting successful outcomes with that collaboration is a key skill. So for somebody who's, you know, either just starting in their career in AppSec, that skill becomes really important for them to eventually become very successful or go further up in the, in the chain. Yeah, no, yeah, and exactly right. And it can be anybody because at the end of the day, even if you're not tasked with that, you can become that person at the end of the day. Like if you are the person that everybody trusts, you become the de facto person that is going to be the political liaison between all these different functions, right? And I think one of the the phrases that is always stuck in my head that I heard, I don't remember where I heard that, but there is a reason we have two ears and just one mouth, right? You need to listen twice as much as you talk. And that's a skill of itself because, you know, we have a lot of knowledge we want to go across and share and whatever. But if we don't listen twice as much as we speak, we're never going to be able to get the, the point across, right? Because we're just going to come from our perspective, our background, our understanding of the world, and the other person is going to be lost because they do not have the same background and the same view of the world as we do. That's um, phenomenal advice. That's really good. And I think one of the other things, and just because I know you and your team, I know you guys also listen a lot through your security champions programs. And in my experience, almost everyone I talk to talks about security champions program, but it's very few people who can actually sustain it and, and make it successful over a period of time. In most cases, they start it, it either decays and dies at some point, or they just fail to get traction. Your team is one of the few teams that I know has been able to operate this, uh, get meaningful outcomes out of it for a long period of time. What is your key to the success here in operating a security champions program? Yeah, one of the things I learned in a past job that actually makes it's like the most stupid thing in the world, but it actually makes a lot of difference. We have a monthly meeting with our security champions and the title of the meeting is not Security Champions Meeting. It's a Security Champions Roundtable. Just this word roundtable makes the whole difference because now it's not a meeting where you're going to come and be 
learning about security and the security team is going to be telling you about stuff. But it's a round table where we're all equal. We're going to sit in this table and we're going to have a discussion and everybody can bring any topic. Of course, most of the topics are driven by security and we are the, the one proposing them. But any engineering team can bring any topic they want and we're going to treat them exactly equal as the security ones. Even sometimes we give more priority to the ones that engineering teams bring to us than the ones we are bringing just to give this equal level of like, it's a round table. This is a partnership. This is not a one-way direction of like, you are Marminion, so you're going to do what I need in the engineering team. It's more of like, we're equals and we're having this partnership kind of situation. And I think that has been a very key success. I, every time, like one or two days before the meeting, I start like going in the channels where all the champions are and asking them like, do you have anything? Do you want to bring something? Or when I'm working with them about something, I would just go and it's like, oh, can you please bring this up to the security champions roundtable so we can discuss about it and everybody can, can listen what we had and, and whatnot. And just like trying to find not just like what the security team wants, but getting engineering to talk about security. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think keeping that engagement up over a period of time is really, really difficult because everyone gets busy with other things, right? It might sound exciting to them for some time and they get distracted. Do you have any specific ways on how you keep it fun, keep it engaging with them? Yeah, it's a conversation usually. That's the main thing. It's a conversation. It's not like, oh, we we don't have any topics. I'm, I'm just going to give a presentation and I'm going to teach you about this new security vulnerability or whatever. I just try to make them relevant. Like, no, of course we had the log4j as everybody else had. So we used that in order to talk about log4j in, in that round table and, right. and go into more of the details. But it's more opportunistic that this is a class you're attending and this is what you need to learn. We're going to provide it. We have like other avenues to do that, that kind of things. Um, right. Also, the other thing I try to get to is, you know, we have an engineer in all hands where engineers do kind of stuff. And there are like some phrases and some ways that the, the presenter on, on that meeting does some things. And I try to copy some of them. And I have found that like a lot of engineers just laugh when I do them. Like for once, I'm doing them wrong, but I'm trying to, you know, mimic whatever they are used to. On the other hand, I also have a funny accent. So <laughs> I'm just doing like saying it completely in the wrong ways and, and whatnot. But, you know, like these kind of like small details, which are like, you're not coming to me and this is my game, my ball. I'm going to dictate the rules, but this is more like a partnership and I'm going to try to mimetize in your world kind of situation, I think make a lot of difference. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it definitely checks a lot of boxes in terms of keeping it casual and you know engaging and fun. A lot of times people go into the Security Champions program with the assumption that, oh, there's nothing that's going to come out of it. It's only for educational purposes. Now, educating developers on security, that's obviously a very good thing. It's a must-have. But at the same time, do you have different outcomes? Like, have you been able to achieve something that wouldn't have been done without having the Security Champions program? And I'm not talking about just, you know, training and education about security. Well, yeah. So there is sometimes we have efforts that need to be done. So, you know, taking control, we're going to be deprecating some AMIs or, or whatever. So we use the Security Champions as a means of like, here is the information so it can flow through all the engineering we were revisiting some of the policies and the SDLC one had some tweaks that had to be done. So we had that conversation in the engineering champions and they pointed out, okay, so you need to talk to 
these four or five teams out of the 50 we have, those are the ones that have more opinions and that kind of stuff. So it has helped a lot in reducing the time to finding who I need to talk to and getting the information across so they can get that up. Also, the other thing is that in this security roundtable is where we present most of like, okay, this is the next tool or, or tool family that we want to implement. I need some volunteers to come and look at them and, and play with them. So who wants to participate and they, they can start volunteering rather than me going down and, you know, right. um, finger pointing who is going to to do that. Yeah, but so that can get a little bit more resource intensive, right? So yep. do you get, you know, dedicated time commitments from the engineering leadership? Like these are the 20 people in Security Champions program. Yep. I need X number of hours from them committed every week, every month, whatever. Not really, because most of these efforts are not like every team has to do them. We have like three business units. They all do different things. So most of these these efforts are just a subset of them. But there is the understanding that the security champions need to do some work, right? It's not that I have like 20 hours for them to do things. But when I ask for stuff, it is known that some of the roadmap uh, they will have to work this into the roadmap, right? And there is also this negotiation that happens when these kind of things are bigger than normal. And it has to, you know, we have to ask for product to to free some stuff and, and whatnot. Right. Fantastic. Okay. So to summarize this entire conversation, what advice do you have for other application security, product security leaders who are trying to scale and build an effective AppSec program that developers love to be engaged with? Yeah. So I think the, the best advice I can give anybody is try to understand the other person. This is a partnership. This is not a dictatorship. You need to not only tell them what to do and teach them and educate them, which don't get me wrong, you still need to do that, but you need to listen a lot and you need to understand what they are coming from and you need to make an effort in order to understand what their problems they are going through. Because like most of the time, it's not that they don't want to. It's that they just can't for various different reasons, right? Like they do not have enough people. They do not have time in the roadmaps. Like they are being blocked by these, whatever, or a thing. Or what you're asking is just like completely nonsensical and it's too much work and they're not going to do it. And you need to, you know, go and listen to them and figuring out why these efforts are, are not being followed and, and what are the problems they are encountering. So you can split the projects into multiple smaller projects, right? So rather than I need this in a month, okay, let's take this work. It's going to take you a month and split it into like 12 months and do a couple of days a sprint through the year. So rather than getting to this objective this quarter, we're going to get to this objective in December or next year, like whatever it is. So again, two years, one month, we need to listen a lot and understand like what is blocking all the things. Two years, one mouth. That's phenomenal advice, building empathy for the other people that you work with. I'm sure it'll take, it'll be super helpful for every single one of us. Thank you so much, Nico, for your time here today. I really appreciate this. this is a great conversation. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Uh, if you want me to come back, I will be happy to come back. And hopefully I will learn some new things. Uh, All right. tricks we'll, to, to share. We'll definitely get you back in season two. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, 
I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.